I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you gotta decide for yourself who you want. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hello, and welcome to this, the very first Kermode on Film podcast. I'm Mark Kermode, and as the title of the podcast hopefully tells you, I'm going to be talking about films. Some time ago, I wrote a book called The Good, The Bad and The Multiplex in which I asked, what's the point of film critics? What are film critics there for? And I argued that film critics aren't there to tell you what movies to see and what movies not to see. In fact, if you look at the end of year lists of critics' favourite films and box office smashes, you realise pretty quickly that critics don't have any effect on box office success. I mean, why is it that everyone goes to see Transformers movies and Pirates of the Caribbeans, but critics end up championing foreign language films and more art house fare? No, the point about film criticism is this. It exists simply to talk about film. And that's pretty much what this podcast is about. It's me talking about film, sometimes on my own, sometimes with some other people. I'll hope to encourage you to see some films that I like, but in the end, it's absolutely up to you. And I'll talk about some other films which I don't like, which you may feel very differently about. Now, during the course of these podcasts, I will be joined by some other voices. Jack Howard, for example, is going to be a regular guest here on Kermode on Film. Jack and I have known each other for a few years now, and we've discovered that we often have very different opinions about what's a good and a bad film. So, for example, in this first episode, you can hear me and Jack discussing the merits or otherwise of two current releases, First Man and Venom. And also in coming weeks, we're going to be talking about some old classic films about which we may or may not agree. There are also going to be some interviews from a live show that I do every month at the BFI Southbank, Mark Kermode, live in 3D. It's been going for about three years now, and it's basically a 90-minute live show in which I talk about films and I get on some guests. So at the end of this first podcast, you can hear a few highlights of the recent interviews that we've had with Sir Michael Caine, Desiree Akavan, the director of The Miseducation of Cameron Post, Rob Bryden doing some brilliant imitations, and ace Scottish director Lynn Ramsey. I'm also going to be doing a feature in which I go to movie-related locations. Now, I know what you'll think. We can't see the pictures. What's the point of you going somewhere? Now, somebody who's spent most of his life working in radio, I've always felt that the pictures are better on radio. So, for example, I'm recording this introduction in a hotel room in Belfast. I've come to Belfast for the Cine Magic Festival and to talk about a book that I've written called How Does It Feel? And I've just spent the last couple of hours with David Holmes, musician and producer and writer and director, who was one of the key driving factors in Good Vibrations, a film I absolutely love, about the Belfast punk scene in the 1970s, about the rise of the undertones, and about Terry Hooley and his titular record shop. Soon, it'd be too late. What do you say, name was? Fergal. Fergal Shargan. 
the best thing I ever recorded. Everybody has to hear them. Everybody. Do they have any good looking friends? What is wrong with you people? We're also going to have some interviews done specifically for the Kermode on Film podcast. We've already got in the bag a lovely interview with Maggie Gyllenhaal about her new film, The Kindergarten Teacher, and an interview with Bill Forsyth, who directed one of my favourite films of all time, Local Hero. So Bill Forsyth reliving his memories of Local Hero. Can you remember where the idea of Local Hero came from? It was the producer. It was it was uh, David, Putnam. David Putnam. I met David after that sinking feeling. He took me to Fortnum and Mason's for a sandwich lunch as well. <laughs> and so we're sitting in there and he said, um, well, have you got anything for me? And I pulled the script for Greg's girl out <laughs> my case. Uh, I'd come down on the bus that morning from Glasgow. <laughs> and um, he took that away. But he wasn't interested in that because he said he had done his uh, teen movie, it Stardust. Yeah. So we didn't, we, you know, we didn't communicate for a few a year or two, and then after Gregory's girl, we started to talk talk again, and um, he said, if if we can come up with something in Scotland, if you want to shoot in Scotland, if we can come up with something that's got a couple of Americans in it, I can get some Warner's money. Yeah. So that's where it came from, and the obvious thing—it wasn't a genius idea. It was the oil industry was everywhere, you know. It was in every, you know page of every newspaper so I said well what about the oil business well so that's where it came from Okay, so I'm very glad to say that I'm joined by Jack Howard. Jack, hello. Hello there. How are you doing? All right, thanks, mate. Just uh, for people who haven't been introduced to you before, mm-hmm. you and I first met a couple of years ago now. Yeah, yeah. We, I was doing Radio 1 back then, um, and you messaged me out of nowhere being like, my son's a fan, and I'd like to bring him into Radio 1, if that's okay with you. And I was like, um, hello, Mark Kermode. I've been a fan of you for years. Yes, would you like to also be on my show? And you were like, if you want me to be on your show, I'll be on your show, but on your head be it. Uh, and then, and on my head it then was, because yeah. you then sprung a live movie quiz on me, which I always said, don't ever do that. <laughs> Literally, if you... I mean, I, I this is terrible. If you ask me in a movie quiz, who directed Citizen Kane, yeah. I'll go blank. Yeah. I, would go, I was doing a, a television programme the other day, and they said, oh, we've got this thing, which is people send in pictures of famous movie locations for Mark to... I said, don't do that. Yeah. Uh, Seriously, if you put, if you put the steps from The Exorcist, I won't recognise them. <laughs> this program was a television program that went on for four hours, right? right? But they decided they were going to do this this thing. They weren't dropping it. And it just like people would send in pictures of really famous movie like I just said, I don't know. Would you really do that bad? Yeah, I mean because I, as you know from when we did that <laughs> quiz, if you if you put me on, the, they once asked me, would you like to be on Celebrity Mastermind? And I said, I cannot think of anything I would like less. I'd rather in my... go to hell. Yes, I, I would literally rather watch all the Pirates of the Caribbean movies back to back on hard rotation for a weekend. Or I would rather do what Shia LaBeouf did that time that he sat in a cinema and watched his entire movie catalogue. Was it in reverse? Did I watch... don't know what. He, I mean, I don't know what is happening with Shia LaBeouf, but yes, he did do that once and just sat there. I think crying. Yes, and he live own... he live streamed himself, yeah. so you could log in and watch Shia LaBeouf. Watch watching, Shia LaBeouf. Watch Shia LaBeouf, <laughs> which was a strange thing. I think the first time we met in person 
was at a premiere of a Star Wars movie. So I actually think that was the same week as we did the podcast, as, uh, po- as, as we did the uh, the Radio One show. Okay. Because so I think we met there, and then it was the first uh, return of Star Wars. It was the Force that's Awakens right. screening. That's right. It was Force and Awakens. You were at the front with your son, and yeah. there was like maybe ten or fifteen people there already. We got there really early because we knew it was going to be massively popular. Yes. And then I was like, "Oh, there's Mark." And then we got in line, and you went, "Jack." Yeah. Do you know the reason why I did that? Why? Because my son went. That's Jack Howard. <laughs> That's Jack Howard. Could you? Could you? I, just, I don't know him. He's a, yeah. Can you get him over? That's how. It, so yeah, that was. There was a whole bunch of people there. I think because there was a party of there was like all these famous Star Wars people. Yeah. Going, I met Jack Howard. Yeah. Anyway, so since then we discovered that one of the things that we liked doing was having a discussion after we'd seen films. Yeah, it, uh, it became which... a little thing at a pub nearby, That's which right. we've since, me and my friends have called the Kermode pub. Oh, really? <laughs> Literally, we call it that, because it's this little <laughs> pub in Leicester Square that we go to. We go, and if there's nowhere to go, we go, Kermode pub? Because yeah, yeah, like, yeah. it's just where we end up going after Very screenings. Good. That pub is the pub which everyone used to go to after Fright Fest. Mm. They would all sort of go around the way, and it, you know, and it's, a, it, it's, it's, a, it's an odd mix of upmarket and insalubrious at the same time. Absolutely, yeah. And we had a particularly strong debrief after Avengers Infinity War, yep. which I think you had really, really loved, and no. I, I had but not been quite so touched by. But we did. We discovered that we often have kind of you know different views. So, one of the things that we're going to do on this podcast is that you and I can have a regular discussion about some contemporary releases and also some old uh, older films when I say old Jack I mean before the turn of the century like, right not, okay we're not from old, different like, generations years ago. yeah I know you're literally <laughs> you're literally half my age you know that there were films before Quentin Tarantino don't you who I know <laughs> so yesterday you went to see Venom I've seen Venom okay so now you and I haven't discussed this at all not at all okay so here we go with Venom we found something we call them symbiotes Carlton Drake believes that the union between human and symbiote is the key to our evolution. I'm feeling really sick. I'm hearing the voice. Eddie. You're not real. You were just in my head. I went to see Venom uh, at a local cinema because they pulled the National Press Show at the very last moment. The way the National Press Shows work is this. On a Monday or a Tuesday, if you're a National Press critic, meaning you, you, know, you write for one of the newspapers, um, on Monday and Tuesday, you tend to see all the films that are released on Friday. Venom was originally going to be shown on Tuesday afternoon. And I don't live in London. I live in Southampton. Then they pulled the press show from the Tuesday afternoon and they put it back to Tuesday evening when the movie was going to open in cinemas on the Wednesday morning. So basically... I wonder why. Yeah, the shortest... Wait, don't get ahead of yourself. <laughs> the shortest possible amount of time between the press screening and yeah. it opening. Now, generally, as we know, if a movie company is solidly behind a film, they will show it to critics in advance and let them talk about it because they think the word of mouth is going to be good and they think that the, the reviews will do them good. If they're worried about the movie or if it's what is referred to as not a critic's film, uh, then they'll, they'll either pull the press screening entirely or they'll put it so close to the release date that you might as well have actually just had a release. Well, I couldn't make that Tuesday evening, so I went to see it at the cinema. So you had to pay for it. Yeah, I don't mind doing that. I mean, no. it's fine, but I mean, it meant that I saw it in you know in a cinema with you know with with, with a with, with a an opening audience. day with 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 the fans of the film as well, like people who. Yeah. Were, so it was was it full? No. Oh. No. No. Although <laughs> although as has subsequently been proven, the film has actually taken a, a very large amount of money, and it's become once again 
a part of this debate about, you know, uh, critics don't like it, but audiences have flocked to see mm-hmm. it. I read uh, in, I think it was Deadline, that, you know, it cost 100, 160 mil in order to make... Um, in order to make its money back, it would have to take over four hundred million. It looks like it's on course to do that. Uh, so you know, it's it it, it, it will it, be a success. It, it's a film that will be a success, and you know, consequently, there may be more of them. Uh, however, our responses. So here's what I thought about Venom. Go ahead. Firstly, I don't know because I'm not a huge comic books aficionado, and I I spend my life getting confused by which universe are we in. Are we in the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Are we in the? Did Sony? you go into this being like, is this part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or is this separate? Or did you have that confusion as well? I went in thinking I'm tired already. Okay, because you know because <laughs> it was part of me was thinking, okay, you know, I know it's connected to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but it's the Sony Cinematic Universe, and yeah. it's a spin-off of Spider-Man Three, which we all know was the worst of the Spider-Man films anyway. Even Sam Raimi. He thought that it was. You He's know, apologized for it. Yes, he has apologized. But that's good for him. <laughs> so I went in with a slightly heavy heart, also knowing that the press screening had been pulled, as far as I can tell, at the last minute. I knew it was directed by Ruben Fleischer, who's. I like he, him. He made some interesting stuff. Uh, so in the past. I like Zombieland a lot. Yeah, Zombieland's a very nice film. Yeah. It's very good. It's not good as Adventureland, but it is. But it's an interesting film. Sure. And um, so, film starts up and. It's Tom Hardy, and Tom Hardy is Eric Brock, who's this character who is basically, he's a, he's a vlogger, and at the very beginning of the film, he is sent to interview a character played by Riz Ahmed, about whom he knows some dirt because he's looked at his partner's emails. Correct. And so he's discovered that actually, you know, Riz Ahmed's character is involved in all manner of bad stuff. He's basically, killing homeless people. He's killing homeless people by <laughs> testing his experimental drugs on homeless people who basically don't get... Yeah, I know. Is it, in the, and Eddie Brock's friends with homeless people. Yes, I so know. So he's emotionally invested. <laughs> there, you know, there's a Steven Seagal movie, and I think it's... I think it's hard to kill. It's one of those marked for death or hard to kill or outfit. I think it's I think it's hard to kill in which you know that a character is bad because at the very beginning of the film he drops a puppy in a paper bag onto the road and Steven Seagal picks it up. So Great. you think, okay, fine, we've now we're clear. Good, this bad. one, good, good, and bad. <laughs> so at the beginning, there is you know Tom Hardy doing his mumbly thing, mm-hmm. and uh, he's got a, you know a, a, a relationship which is suddenly jeopardised by the fact that actually he's looked at his girlfriend's emails and he knows a whole bunch of stuff that he shouldn't know when he's meant to do the interview with Riz Ahmed, who has actually been exploring new worlds and you know new frontiers and has brought back from space these weird symbiotic symbiotes or whatever they're called, strange tentacly <laughs> things. And what they need to do, I mean, this is a plot. So what they need to do is that they need to bond with a human host, okay? Which is basically how we get the, the, the venom thing. And at first, it seemed to me almost on a par with Fantastic as one of those. Which I movies. haven't seen. Oh, okay. I chose to avoid that. Yeah. Can I just tell you, you're not missing anything. Yeah. Fantastic Four, that Fantastic film was one of those films in which it's like, I know, look, let's make a superhero movie, but like, let's not actually make it super. Let's just like make it a movie about some misfits. You know, <laughs> it's just it's just some people having a hard time. They just happen to be anyway. So it starts out for me like this. And I thought, okay, this is going to be quite boring because I'm I'm not that invested in any of this, and this is a spin-off. It is a spin-off from Spider-Man, whether you like it or not. Yep. And I actually I don't know that much. Then, about a third of the way through, I thought it became really silly. Um, the Tom Hardy character has uh, uh, bonded with uh, with the Venom character, and suddenly he develops Elastic Man like uh, abilities. He's all springy, he's all boingy. There's a motorbike chase in which there's no jeopardy involved whatsoever because Tom Hardy ap- appears to now be indestructible, and he can you know stretch and zip zang. Great shields, exactly. So what does it matter what happens to him? He suddenly and I th- that point I started to think, okay, this I, this is really really stupid, and then. 
about two thirds of the way through the film, it suddenly found its feet and it turned into all of me meets yep. the blob or, you know, flubber, it, flubber. Yeah, actually flubber. <laughs> yeah. And so, suddenly I started enjoying it. And what was weird was that I had spent a lot of the movie. Jack, turn your phone off. I've you... got I've got my phone because I've got notes on it. OK, but that's it. Put it on airplane yeah, mode. Okay, good idea. This is sorry, people, listeners, <laughs> the young generation of today. <laughs> I literally have to tell him to turn his phone off while he's doing this. Okay? I've got my notes on it. You know, the world won't stop if you don't answer the phone. That wasn't the, the point. point of t- <laughs> don't have a go at me, Howard, I'm Jack, on the podcast. Shut it. It's our first right. time. Okay, and uh, so. The last third of it, I thought, was actually kind of fun. It was Tom Hardy stuck in, the, in a body in which there was two different characters and they were arguing with each other. And, they were, and I presume that the, vo- the Venom voice is done by it Tom Hardy Tom as well because yeah. it has the same strange way of saying the letter R. Right. And that's all fine. So I thought the last third of it was bonkers but kind of entertaining. And I came out and I said to, uh, to my son, who you know, I said, well, that was just, that was nuts. I said, but I'll tell you what, it was never boring. And he went, no, it was boring at the beginning You've forgotten that it was boring at the beginning <laughs> and then it was silly and then it was kind of entertaining. So my feeling about it was it was it's a total mess. Yes, I thought it, it was I thought it was totally all over the place. I thought it was dull at one point and then I thought it was stupid at another point. But weirdly enough, in its last segment, it ended up being Howard the Duck or Hudson Hawk. <laughs> In terms of, I know this is stupid, yeah, but I'm kind of going with it. So, bizarrely, I actually enjoyed it more than I thought I would, although I think it is a total mess. Yeah. Over to you. So, I I, I think for, it's important for context that I am the exact opposite of Mark. Yes. I am the exact opposite of you. I grew up loving Spider-Man. To me, when Spider-Man 3 was coming out, I was... I want to say I was like 15 when Spider-Man 3 was going to be coming okay. out, and I was a big fan of Venom, specifically from the Spider-Man animated TV show <clears throat> from the 90s, and I was so disappointed by Spider-Man 3 that... Well, I, everyone was. Uh, but, you, I mean, as a fan of Spider-Man, yeah. and of all... I, mean, I had what I think was my first heartbreak, because <laughs> I was trying to convince myself for the longest time that it was all right, for ages after seeing Spider-Man 3 I was like no I liked it no I liked it it was great like, there was some <laughs> I can that, hear you doing that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no no I liked it no, yeah, no. yeah no, it was good and then people around me were in Jack it was terrible like people who didn't care about Spider-Man going Jack it was awful is this like me and Mute uh, yeah it was a little bit like that it was a little <laughs> bit like you just couldn't see sense <laughs> and um, eventually I did and it just became it hasn't ended, actually. Okay. Last year, I was in Los Angeles, and me and my friends watched the re-edited version of Spider-Man 3. They released oh, a, a new cut of it. For cut the, by? Uh, just a, one of the editors, I think, that worked on it. Okay. So he did a, a re-edit of it using... Uh, I think it was on the 10-year anniversary as, as like a marketing ploy to be like, here's another version of it. It might be better. And it's got like some deleted scenes from Sandman. It's got some like different versions of music in there and things like that. And me and my friends watched it. And there were some moments in it, and you can tell we're still we're still trying so hard. <laughs> so there was moments in it we went, "That was all right. That was a bit better, wasn't it? That's a bit better than the." And then it just finished. And my friend Dom, who is maybe a bigger Spider-Man fan than anyone I know, he just put his head in his hands, and with his just, he just went, "I'm never watching that movie again." 
<laughs> he just went, I'm sick of trying to convince myself that there may this be like something me, to it. This is like me and Caligula. Right. I'm on version seven. I'm going, you know what? Actually, maybe it's just not any maybe good. Maybe it's time to call it a day. <laughs> and so when I heard they were doing a Venom movie, yeah. it's like... Because I used to think there is no way you're going to get Spider-Man in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. There's no way Sony are going to let that happen. Yeah. And then it did happen. And then they announced the Venom movie. And I was like, yeah, but that won't, that won't happen for years. Like You hear that movies get announced sometimes and then it takes years and years and years and they never happen. I was like, that's going to be one of these. And before we know it, it's out and it's done. And I was like, I, can't, I was sat in the cinema yesterday and I was like, I can't believe I'm about to see a movie called Venom about Venom. <laughs> this is mental. What world, what world are we living in? And I totally agree with everything you've just said. I had this really odd experience where I was totally baffled at the start because it felt like the, I mean, the first act of it which is about 10 minutes long <laughs> felt like they were go it felt like the worst version of, of a story where they went okay we need this to happen so what do we need to put in the movie in order to make people know that's the information rather yeah. than connecting anything emotionally yeah. and then as soon as Eddie Brock was connected to the symbiote I mean what a crap way of doing it as well that like it comes off somebody else I mean what a boring sequence that was um and so as soon as you started talking so to him... So you were bored, yeah? Oh, yeah, totally yeah, bored, bored, but baffled. Yeah. Like, like bored just, and baffled. Yeah, at the same time. So I just couldn't look away, but at the same time, I wanted to yawn constantly. <laughs> so it, when it was on Eddie Brock, I was like, okay, here we go. Now we're going to start being interesting. And it was weird and fun, and I wish there was more stuff like that. Um, have you heard about like Tom Hardy saying his favourite stuff in the film? Isn't in it. Isn't in it. There's four, apparently 40 minutes he said, of stuff that's not in it. And, it, and I've got to think that that is him, all, him and the symbiote yeah. bonding. Which is the thing that actually is the, the bit of that's the movie that's interesting. That's what the movie absolutely should have been. If it was this weird, off film about this odd couple that are in one body, I would have been totally for that. So the all of me thing is what you... you it, it, which, of course, is you know, Steve Martin with Lily Tomlin inside him when he looks in a mirror, he sees her. So that's the two, the two people in one body film. Yes, and I, I think this could have been a dark comedy version of that yeah. with a character who wants to literally eat people and another person being like, no, I don't no, you think can't. we should. Yeah. And then they come to an arrangement which is you can only eat bad people. Yes. But which, it's quite funny. But like the film like misses so many easy story moments where it should be Tom Hardy is pathetic he gets the symbiote and he likes it and he likes the power and he like actually goes on a rampage and starts literally killing people yeah. and then at the end he realises no we need to we, I need a bit of me and a bit of you and we can hurt the bad people that's literally the story you should have told but nobody in this movie has a character arc except for Venom <laughs> in one scene where eventually we find out I want to destroy the world but you've changed my mind in one scene they do his whole character arc but no one else changes in the whole movie and I couldn't believe I, li- I literally watched it and my mouth dropped I was like because my girlfriend Hazel leaned over to me and she went what does Venom want in any of these scenes and I was like oh yeah he seems to just want to protect Tom Hardy because he's in I guess he, well, he has to, to protect Tom Hardy yeah, because he needs, he a needs human... him to survive yeah. which I get but then, what's his larger like plan? Does he want to get off the planet? Is that what, what I mean? I was just literally trying to figure it out. And then in one scene, he goes, "Eddie, I wanted to destroy the world. No, I don't. But you've changed my mind." And he do it like this really earnest moment where he goes, "Like you did, Eddie. You did." And it's like, "Hang on, <laughs> what, what, what's happening? What movie are we in?" Um, and there were some things in it as well that I was disappointed by, like 
when the dog got taken over by yeah. the symbiote, I wanted the dog to turn up in the forest. Yes. Because that would have been just such a great comedy so it's, it's scene. The whole point is it's a tiny little dog. Yeah. And you see the dog, his eyes glow. It's like a chihuahua or yeah. something, and it gets taken over by the symbiote. And, but you also, you want it to be kind of like a John Carpenter, the thing moment, when yeah. the dog's head suddenly explodes yes. and a huge, massive, great, I mean, that's evil e- monster exactly comes out what it, it should have been. It should have been all of me and the thing. And the thing. And that's what the movie should have been. But you can tell that the studio, like cutting out all the stuff that Tom Hardy liked, all the sort of the dark comedy moments between Venom and himself and Eddie Brock. They cut all that out and went, let's get to the point. Okay, so do you think that's what happened? Do you think that it yes. started as a different movie and it got bent out Without of shape? Without a doubt. You don't get Ruben Flesh- uh, Fleischer, Fleischer? Fleischer, I think. But... Uh, who did Zombieland, uh, who, which I think is a very dark comedy. Like yeah. There's moments in it where <laughs> Bill Murray gets shot out of nowhere. Yeah. So like that's the weird Murray, off... As Bill Murray. As Bill Murray. As Bill Murray, yeah. Gets shot. <laughs> And like there's weird dark comedy moments in it, and you can tell that Tom Hardy thinks he's doing some sort of like modern Jim Carrey performance. Yeah. Like he's he's all, like I mean we were talking about it after the, we saw it yesterday. Um, me and my friends were saying it's basically like a reboot of The Mask. Like it's it's him not being able to control and these urges that come out afterwards. But the The Mask actually has a character a hug in yeah. it. Whereas like, and in The Mask he actually likes it. Yes, he exactly. Gets seduced by it. Yes. Whereas in this he like constantly is, is is ill and doesn't want it and and that. I don't know. Yeah, there's something there about like I wanted him to want that power. Yeah. Um, okay, but so here's the interesting point. For me, all, all the stuff that works is in the last third of the movie, and there was there was there used to be this whole philosophy that it doesn't matter what a movie does as long as at the end you come out having enjoyed the last ten minutes of it, you think it was good. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember very specifically coming, as I said before, coming out and saying, well, that was never boring. And then my son going, no, it was boring. You've literally mm-hmm. just forgotten because it was boring until the bit that happened at the very, very end. Um, the box office figures are much stronger than anyone projected. Do you think that the it, it, that fans, I mean, when I say fans, I mean people like you, mm-hmm. Jack, have gone to see it and are coming out of it thinking, that's great, I'd like to see more? Or do you think they're coming out of it and going, that's really disappointing? You know what's really weird is that I didn't like it and I knew exactly what this movie would be. I, I was sort of predicted, I was like, I mean, it's not hard to predict, but I was like, okay, so he's going to get the Venom symbiote, then there's going to be a worse version of Venom, he's going to have to kill that Venom, and then we're going to set up Carnage at the end, and then they're going to do Carnage for number two because everyone needs to know who Venom is before we do Venom versus Carnage. And that's exactly what happened. And I came out of it being like, God, like it was boring, but also it felt really quick. It never felt slow, but it was boring and weird. But I felt, I want to see Venom versus Carnage. Like, I want to see that happen. And casting Woody Harrelson as Cletus Cassidy, for me, is like, that's perfect. But So weirdly, for all the things that are wrong with it... all the things that are wrong with it, I'll see another one. Like, because hopefully... And I have too much optimism when it comes to this sort of stuff. Like, I've been burned so many times by this weird optimism that I continually have, especially for movies made by Sony. (laughs) 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 Like, I really want them to lean into the right stuff and have just Venom and and, and Carnage and Eddie Brock and Cletus Cassidy, like, at just a two-hander movie where them two face off against each other. Put them in a room and have them talk to each other. Like... Just do something interesting. Do something darker. Everyone's talking about how, like, you need to do an R rating for for Carnage because he's a serial killer. Whereas, like, the Joker is a serial killer, but that's not an R-rated movie. It doesn't need to be that. It just needs to be interesting. And I hope that Woody Harrelson... I mean, I'm saying this now. I hope that Woody Harrelson wouldn't have taken the role if he didn't find it interesting. But... 
Tom Hardy wouldn't have taken the role if he didn't find it interesting. He doesn't have control over the final See, thing. See, that's the that was one of the weird things for me is you know Tom Hardy is whatever else he may be, he's a very good actor and everything, but he's very earnest. He's somebody who throws himself into yeah. things. You know, it's hard to think of the last time you saw Tom Hardy in a throwaway. Yeah, uh, you know, light. I think there's only been one, which was like this means war. Which is like the only romantic comedy he's done where it's like, oh, he's just playing a certain, yeah, yeah. just a, that's anybody not, could have played that role. Because that's not what he does, <clears throat> and consequently, the the for me the the beginning of the film was very very sort of weirdly unbalanced because it felt like it was trying to do a kind of character study thing, but it didn't have the script potential to yeah. do it because it was a, it's a perfect example of tell don't show in that in that opening act. You are just full of people explaining to you what's going on, yeah. and you know, reading things out loud and having things constantly my, told to you about. And this is and this is how you need to feel about this. Yeah. And this is how you need to feel about that. Which my I, least favorite thing in exposition, especially again, they Sony do it all the time, is when people look at computers and it does full screen computer screen. I hate that. <laughs> I hate it so much. I think it's so ugly. Um, yeah, you're right. Like the the entire beginning is just functional storytelling, and then and then and then and then, and it's just it's just boring. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now, you said at one point during this, you, you, you mentioned the right stuff. And I want to just use this to sort of segue briefly into something else which is out, which I think we, we, we have different opinions about, which is that First Man has just opened. Yep. You know, First Man, which to some extent picks up after the right stuff, the uh, you know, Phil Kaufman film. That is a big mother. It'll go up like a half kiloton A-bomb if it blows. The vehicle's not safe. You need to fail down here so we don't fail up there. This isn't just another trip, Neil. You're not just going to work. Do you think you're coming back? There are risks, but we have every intention of coming back. Well, you go first. You tell me about what you man. think about it, First Man. So First Man is about uh, Neil Armstrong and his journey to potentially being the first man to walk on the moon. I think we can say that it's not a plot spoiler. He was the first man to walk on the moon. I Just think in case, literally everyone knows that. You never know who might be going into this film yeah. and being like, oh, I wonder what okay. happens. Um, okay. OK, so my opinion on this is that I think that this is one of Ryan Gosling's best if not the best performance he's ever done I think he always does that very very quiet you can't really tell what I'm thinking type performance he never goes too big ever and in this one 
I thought that he it was the perfect role for that. He was clearly very like closed off as a person. Because the whole point about Armstrong is he is not emotionally expressive. In fact, in the scene in which he may be going away and not coming back, his wife, brilliantly played by Claire Foy, yep. has to has to force him mm-hmm. to sit down and say to his children. I'm going to the moon. And he does and it like a board meeting. Yeah. Like, it's, it's heartbreaking. He, he literally says, any questions? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, <coughs> it, it, it's a fantastic performance. Okay, but there's a big but coming. There's a big but coming. <laughs> um, but, other than Gosling's performance, and a few sequences in the film, I really sort of struggled with it. I don't want to use the term boring because I hate when people use that term, but I think it was baggy. I think it's two and a half hours long and it doesn't need to be. There's also something fundamental in here that is specific only to... Well, okay. No, no, if we're going to have a... We're going to be specific. (laughs) All right. Um, But there's also something in this that, for me only, and this is not a thing that will be universal across the board, but I'm sure other people have thought it as well, is I personally could not get past... The fact that I know the ending. I know that he makes it to the moon. I know everything's fine. So when the drama's happening between the family about, like, you have to tell your children you may not be coming back. I can't believe you're doing this. There's so much danger involved. You know that all this could go wrong. And I'm sitting there being like, but it doesn't. And I know that already. And so I really find it troubling that I can't buy into the drama because I know everything's okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I'll tell you, here's the problem with it is. The problem is this. You're a child. Um, (laughs) Now... I remember seeing. Uh, I give you an example. I remember seeing Apollo thirteen, and when I saw that, I was doing the Radio One because I was at Radio One years before you were at Radio One. Like I was at Radio One in the nineties. I think. I think yeah. back then. I know you were you were reviewing um, Apollo thirteen. Yeah, back then uh, it was actually called One FM because the idea of it being FM was considered to be really futuristic <laughs> FM station. I went to, to to see Apollo thirteen with Wendy Lloyd, who was much who is much younger than me, and um, we'd been sort of paired together because I think. Radio 1, even then, thought that I was a bit old right. to be talking to these audiences. And I went to see it, and Wendy Lloyd was with me. And, you know, Wendy's carried on being a you know, very, a very good film critic, and she's got a brilliant radio voice and all that sort of stuff. And at the end of Apollo 13, I said, you know, the best thing about that was it didn't matter that I knew exactly how it turned out, because I thought they made it really tense. And Wendy Lloyd said, I didn't know how it turned out. I went, mm-hmm. what, you didn't know they got back? She went, no. She said, I said Wendy, how do you not know? She said... I'm literally half your age, okay? Now, my feeling that the the, the great triumph of Apollo 13 was it made the fact that they got back tense, even though I knew and I thought everyone else did, although it turned out that not everyone did. But... Hang on. (laughs) Wait. In the case of First Man... I think that that's not what it's doing at all. And I think you you fundamentally misunderstood... I totally agree with you. Really? Yes. Okay, fine. I think that, for me, it's a film, in the same way that Jaws is not a film about a shark, First Man is a film about grief and loss that just happens to have a spaceship in it. The whole point about um, the, the conversation with the kids... You know, are you coming back? I'm going to try, but you might not. Well, I might. And that's incidentally not a plot spoiler because it's in the trailer. And I think we're all assuming that we all know how the film ends anyway. Um, it's not that there is, for, for us, an anxiety that, it might, that he might not get back. It's that in that moment, he is completely cut off from everyone around him. So when I think of films about um, space travel, one of the things I constantly come back to, and this was something that I talked about briefly in the Secrets of Cinema program that I did. There is a soliloquy in the ninth configuration 
when the, 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 the character played by Scott Wilson, who recently died, is a, an astronaut is meant to be going to the moon and he won't go. And he's, he appears to have gone mad. And part of the thing is about why won't you go to the moon? Why won't you go to the moon? And the film's written and directed by William Peter Blatty, who made Exorcist, therefore it's got a big sort of Catholic story behind it. But his, the answer is he's had a crisis of faith. He doesn't believe in God anymore. And he does this soliloquy in which he looks out into the night sky and he says, see the stars, see how alone they are. You know, what if I got there and I couldn't get back? Everyone's afraid to die, but I'm afraid of dying alone. And if there's no God, then that is really, really alone. And that loneliness of space is something that works in all the space travel films that I like the best. I mean, Silent Running, which was actually sold as the loneliest journey uh, of all. For me, from the very beginning of First Man, he's lost in space. I mean, you see him constantly framed in his own house, surrounded by these dark spaces, with him in a room that's lit up as if he's in a space capsule from the beginning. At the very beginning, we see him in a test plane, and it looks like he's going to skip it off the Earth's atmosphere and out into space. And the film makes an argument that may be a, a, a dramatic argument. I mean, how truthful it is, we don't know. But the argument is this is to do with bereavement. This is to do with the loss of his uh, daughter. And actually, the whole film is about him wrestling with that. So I never thought for one minute that it was a film about does he get back? Mm -hmm. I thought it was a film about can he be reconciled with it? And in exactly the same way that the central idea of the ninth configuration is, the problem isn't what happens if you die alone on the moon. The problem is, is that alone? Because if you believe in God, it doesn't matter where you die because God's with you. And I thought the whole narrative trajectory of First Man was he gets himself into the most isolated place possible because he's actually trying to find something beyond this world and I think it's not a plot spoiler to say that to some extent that's what's driving and I you know I, I think thought... you I think you're totally right I, th I think that but like, you were bored Jack well there, I think there are sequences in it that like I feel like when the movie's really really good literally just if, we, if we, you've just did a whole bit there about like the thematics of it and yeah. what it's like truly about which I totally agree with and I I know that it's about a man's journey into really being able to let go of the death of his daughter and move on and, and do it in the most private place yes yeah. Um, <clears throat> but I think there are some sequences in it that, and some moments in it just from a story point of view of the thing you're being presented that I didn't understand why it was you know certain things were happening and taking as long as they were t taking and, and it, it just felt very baggy in, in a storytelling way however I, I totally agree that when I said that I know the ending it's not tense for me to to, to 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 have those sort of conversations and then be like, but I know I know he's getting back. I know that it's not about that, which is why when I've said that, I was like, this is only a me thing. This is not going to be a universal thing, but it's absolutely going to be a thing that people think. <laughs> I know that that's not the, the point, but still, I couldn't get past it. I, there was something about it that like wouldn't let me like truly, truly invest in what was going on because I felt like the film was trying to make me go, yeah, but they might not. And... I knew that it everything wasn't. would be fine. I, okay. It All wasn't. Right. I mean, and, and, and evidence that it wasn't is given by the fact that they don't even do the journey back. Mm -hmm. They literally get from the, you know, stop listening if you bother about plot spoilers. They literally get to the moon and then the next thing they're on Earth. Yeah. I mean, we don't, they, they don't do the, you know, the, the whole, it, because because that's, that's never the issue. The, yeah. the issue is the end 
is that he finds some kind of peace. Also, I thought that that the end shot of you know the, the him and his wife separated by the glass yeah. was 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 beautifully done. Yeah, I, I I do agree with you completely about Ryan Gosling. I think one of the things about Ryan Gosling is that 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 thing about the less he gives, the more yes. you see. However, my my one caveat for that would be you need Claire Foy there. You do. Doing the kind of Greek chorus, this is what's going on. She's feeling all the feelings. Yeah. She's feeling all the feelings very outwardly and she can't understand why he isn't. Because they, they are two characters that have been separated by something so horrific that they've gone to two ends of the spectrum. Yeah. Um, of highly emotional and, and very outward and, and, and he's gone very internal. Yeah. Um, and I loved all that. I thought that that was like a really, really like excellent way to tell this story. We are doing spoilers. Yes, we are. Okay, if you don't want any spoilers, stop. Was the bracelet a real thing? Yeah, I don't think it is. I don't I, I don't know. I've tried to find out yeah. and I can't get to the bottom of it. Here's the point. When I was saying before about, you know, in the end, that may be a dramatic construction, mm. that's perfectly fine. I was having a conversation with Jason Isaacs the other day. <laughs> and hello. Uh, yeah, hello. And uh, Jason said this thing about... He was complaining about a film that was telling a true story. And he was complaining about the way the true story worked. And I mm. said, but Jason, that's what happened. Yeah. And Jason then went into this long thing about just because it happened doesn't mean it's good storytelling. He'd gone on the Robert McKee course, which sounds to me like hell on earth, but he, he had kind of actually quite enjoyed it. And he said that uh, at one point, Robert McKee said, OK, here's a story. This happens, then this thing happens, then this other thing happens, but then this other thing happens, and this other thing, blah, 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 blah. What do you think? And they all went, well, that's just nonsense. He went, yeah, but it's true. And just because it's true doesn't mean it's, it works dramatically. The other side of that is I actually don't mind a certain degree of emotional thematic liberty being taken with what we know is a true story of they actually, you know, they actually did go to the moon. Um, although there are some people in the world who believe that they didn't. Yeah, literally, uh, like my mate was watching the trailer and went, where's the bit where they fake it? <laughs> yeah, to, which the answer, to which the answer is, here. This is, you know, they fake the moon landings. And you know what? I thought Damien Chazelle did a really good job of it. He faked them really, He's really well. He's the new well. Kubrick. Have you seen that piece of footage of Buzz Aldrin coming out of a town hall meeting? And Buzz Aldrin's been followed for years and years by this bloke who goes, you didn't go to the moon, you didn't go to the moon, you didn't go to the moon. Buzz Aldrin finally lost his temper and lamped him. Just literally punches wow. this guy. He just... I mean, that's what I'm doing as soon as I yeah. get out of this room. I'm YouTubing that clip. But um, it's brilliant. Uh, but, you know, I, I, it, it, I, my suspicion is that that moment you're talking about isn't true. I don't mm-hmm. know. I couldn't, I couldn't, but I don't I mind. can only imagine it, it's not. It I seems can, so cinematic and yes, so theatrical. Yes. But in the end, I don't mind because it worked emotionally for yeah. the film. I don't usually have a problem with that sort of stuff either. I'm a big fan of um, Danny Boyle and Aaron Sorkin, Steve Jobs. Like, I like that movie a lot. Yes. And that movie got a lot of flack for being not true. And yeah. some stuff, like, they ignored the fact that Steve Jobs has many more children than one daughter. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, the, the order of events doesn't happen the way it happens and all that sort of stuff. But I sort of accepted it with that because I knew that Aaron Sorkin's intentions going in were like, I'm not making a biopic. I'm making just like a, I don't even know what you'd call it. Just like, I think he even said, I'm not making a, 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 an autobiography, I'm painting a picture. Yeah. It's a painting, not a book. Or, I don't know what he said. Yeah. Um, <laughs> whatever, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> and I think that's what he said. He said, whatever. <laughs> he said, literally, whatever. You know? That sounds like Sorkin. Yeah. That sounds like Sorkin dialogue. Yeah, but he said it quite fast while he was walking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. 
Um, and somebody should do a programme called Walking and Talking with Aaron Sorkin. And that's literally what you do. He just interviews people while walking very fast down the corridor. I think if he ever like struggles to find work, that's probably what he'll end up doing. Um, but yeah, I, I knew the intentions of that movie going in. And I'm such a big fan of Sorkin anyway that I knew what I was getting. Whereas with this, I was like, I'm getting a straight up biopic. Yeah. And a lot of it felt very like this this could potentially be the way it happened and it okay. felt like there were some complications in there that weren't done for dramatic reasons it right. felt like they were true like right. in the sequence of events yeah, yeah. and then that bracelet moment was emotional at first but then it was very quickly counteracted in my brain with hang on like that feels a bit out of place for yeah it's also counteracted in your brain but I know they get home yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean yeah because like, the entire because, time because you had to turn your phone on and check your messages right, because let's you've not been there for like two hours twenty minutes and like, like a whole bunch of stuff could Hang have on. happened aren't you on the person Twitter. who says that movies shouldn't be over two hours yeah and actually one of the I think one of the, the strongest reasons for my admiration of First Man is that it was two hours twenty and I didn't feel like it right I mean I I, I, I genuinely I have never I can't think of an occasion in which I've seen a film come out of it and thought that was good, but it was a bit short. Mm, yeah. I, you know, but I, I, I mean, I thought Venom was way too long. Yeah. I mean, Venom was just, I mean, you talk about baggy. Yeah. There were whole sections in Venom when it was like, yeah, fine. I can't believe in Venom, to go back to that for a second, that they thought, let's cut out all the moments with Tom Hardy talking to the symbiote and leave in all the bits of Riz Ahmed explaining the Bible. <laughs> like, what, I mean... Yeah, but particularly when it turns out that something like 80% of the audience on the first weekend went because of Tom Hardy mm-hmm. because it's a Tom Hardy film you yeah. know I mean it's a Spider-Man spin-off but they went because it's a Tom Hardy film okay well Jack this has been huge fun <laughs> next time we're going to do an oldie but goldie okay and, and a modern one as well yeah I think so alright cool what do you, what, what's on the horizon that you're that you think we might have I mean, I don't think we'll have a chance to do the new Halloween, will we? No, I think that will be too soon. Oh, okay. But I will, I tell you what, I'll meet you in Kermode's pub to talk that through. <laughs> All right? Okay, yeah, Thank no problem. You. Well, there we go. That's me and Jack Howard talking about Venom and First Man. Jack will be back in a future podcast to talk about some more current releases and also some classic cuts. We're going to finish this first Kermode on Film podcast with some highlights from recent interviews from the Mark Kermode Live in 3D shows that I do at the BFI South Bank. This is just a taster of what that show's like. You're going to hear, in reverse order, Lynn Ramsey, the director of You Were Never Really Here, Rob Brydon doing brilliant impressions of both Mick Jagger and Sir Paul McCartney, Desiree Ackervan, the director of The Miseducation of Cameron Post, a film I absolutely love. But we start with the legendary Sir Michael Caine. I was going to say, the setup there is to do with, you know, Oscars and awards, and obviously you've had your fair share of them. Do they matter? Have they changed you at all? Oh, yeah. I was so, pr- I was so proud to, to win an Oscar. I, 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 I was so happy. I, um, and, and I wasn't even there. I, I, I did a picture with Woody Allen called oh, Hannah and Her Sisters. Sisters, and Woody was very anti-Oscar. And on, on, on the Academy lights, he used to go to the jazz club and play the trumpet or something. And, yeah. and, and he ignored it and, and was very nasty about it. And there was no publicity about it. Uh, 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 no one said, oh, I think Michael's going to be nominated for the Oscar for that. And it was nothing. And I accepted a movie and I was away. I was, I was, way, making one of the, I was way making the worst Jaws movie. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought that up. Yes. And I was making the worst Jaws movie, but uh, um, they offered me a million bucks for two weeks. And so I said, that's great. 
because I was trying to buy a house for my mum. <laughs> and I bought a very nice house, which I have seen, but I haven't seen the movie. <laughs> You've made um, a string of movies with Christopher Nolan, who is, you know, the very, very sort of forefront of modern cinema. I'm, I'm going to show a clip from Interstellar at the moment. But just before we do, he's always seemed to me to be phenomenally intelligent and erudite, and yet you and he seem to have a very personable relationship. Yeah, he regards me as his lucky charm, and I regard him as my lucky charm, believe me. I'm much more, I, he's more my lucky charm than I am his. Because just when you're coming at my age, you know, and when your career's starting to go down, he came along and gave me seven hit pictures. <laughs> and a percentage of Batman. <laughs> Is that a joke? Have you actually got a percentage of Batman? Yeah. So no more Jaws 4s for you? No. <laughs> I've got three houses. <laughs> Please welcome to the stage Desiree Akavan. which hasn't uh, opened yet. But first, can we let's start with The uh, Miseducation of Cameron Post, based on a novel, which I confess I hadn't read. And the thing Surprise, surprise. Is Mark Kermode had not read the uh, lesbian coming-of-age young adult novel that did <laughs> not so well in America. So, shocker. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah, I kind of walked into you. that. Oh, thank, you. thank you, thank you, thank um, you. So, for those who don't know... Can you say what the film is about? Because one of the things that's interesting about The Miseducation of Cameron Post, as I was trying to say in my review, is it's perhaps not the film that people expect. I want to avoid the pitfall. So I'll tell you what, it, like, what it's about, and then I'll tell you why it doesn't fit into yeah. that cliche. But I would say it's like a, a coming-of-age story about a girl who's put into a gay conversion therapy center after she's caught having sex with the homecoming queen yeah. uh, in the back of her boyfriend's car. And it sounds, and I feel like it was sold in a lot of ways as like this very like take your medicine kind of uh, drama, like gay drama, like feel bad for us, we're gay and young and American and Christian. But actually it's more of like a John Hughes coming of age, very sexy coming of age story that has a lot of humor. Huh. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's easy to, to look at the images and think that it's, it's uh, just for gay people. But I actually, I, I wanted to make a story that made me feel like that was about being a teen. And I always felt like being a teen, no matter who you were, gay, straight, black, white, whatever, you felt diseased in some way. And like you needed to exercise yourself of anything that made you unlike the mainstream. Yeah. And uh, that's how I felt watching The Breakfast Club. That's why I liked it so much, even though everybody in it was white and straight. <laughs> and I'm not. And uh, I, But I loved that film, and that's all I had to go on. And I always wanted John Hughes films that you know were made now. I feel like teen films really talk down to the experience of teens. Yeah. And also John Hughes films that were like a little less rapey. I am... Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You read that art. The, it, it is really interesting. If you go back and you watch The Breakfast Club. Anyway, sorry. so. I um, The Breakfast Club. Oh my God. We don't have to go off on this too far, but like 16 Candles, oh, yeah, when yeah, she wakes yeah, up yeah. and she's like, Did we have sex? I know, I and know, he's I like, know. Yeah, we did. And she's like, Great. He went, Don't throw those bloody spears at me. And I went, Oh, am I okay? Yeah, yeah. So I looked up at him and I said, I've told you before. If you're not going to sing, I don't want to bloody know. Now get back in the other room. And he went, ah, and off he went. He loved it. 
you were saying during that clip? Yeah, that's, that's actually a true story. Um, I gen genuinely was at a party, and, uh, and that genuinely did happen. Um, but prior to that, I'd spoken to him for quite a while. He's a remarkable man. I mean, he's a, they, should, they should dissect him. I mean, he's the energy of the man, that, like Cocoon, you know, the life force. <laughs> the life force. And, he, and he's attractive, and you feel drawn to him. Energy, seriously, phenomenal. Phenomenal, yeah, it's true. So when you say I mean, drawn to, I mean, I've never met him. Uh, I know people who've, who've interviewed him, and everyone says, firstly, he's, he's very nice and very, very intelligent. Yeah. But also slightly cagey. I mean, oh, he wasn't with me. He was lovely with me. He's, well, he, he loves the trip, so he's been very flattering and very complimentary. And um, we talked about exercise because I just started working out a bit more, and I and I was feeling the benefit of it and telling him, you know, I was going, oh yeah, I feel really good. He said, well, how how often do you do it? And I said. Uh, <laughs> I say, well, two, sometimes three times a week. And anyway, I do something every day. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he was, I have a big, big fan, yeah. Have you ever met Paul McCartney? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was he like? Oh, you know, he's kind of great, but, you know, he seems to kind of lost the ability, you know, to use, like, consonants anymore. <laughs> Uh, no, he was, he was fantastic. It was actually, with, it's a very long story, but we, with Steve, I went, we went, Steve said, uh, he called me, he said, oh, do, you, do, you, do you want to go see Paul McCartney? <laughs> and uh, I said, yeah. And we went, and um, after the, I'm doing Steve Coogan. Um, <laughs> the, the Manchester comedian. Um, <laughs> And we went to see him, and there was a drink to It's a hell of a long story, but we, yeah, we met him, and he was lovely, and he puts you at your ease. But all the time, you never lose sight. You know, he was telling us, he's going, you know, anyway, then John said, la -di da can you imagine John saying that? And Steve and I were kind of going, oh. <laughs> can I ask you a horror film question? Because I saw a thing in, in the film which I thought was, and I'm probably wrong, yeah. critics do this all the time, they say, oh, such and such, you know, refers to... The scene with Joaquin Phoenix and his mother, there's a number of those scenes, and the first time he comes back, she's been watching Psycho, and there's a whole kind of Norman Bates yeah. thing going on in the background. But I thought that there was an echo there of the scenes between Damien Carras and his mother in The Exorcist. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I love about making films, interpretations, like, that you're like, what, you know? I think I saw someone that came to see Ratcatcher went, it's all about Jesus, and I'm like, really? <laughs> but I find that really fascinating. Um, but yeah, kind of, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, I mean, a lot of people think that, that that scene in particular because, you know, it's this kooky relationship between Joe, the main character, and his mother, you know, was, it, was this big reference that I put on the, in the script to Psycho, but... But actually, I just, my mum watches the TV, like TCM, and she's really into thrillers, and she turns them up really loud, even though she's not deaf, you know? And she's got two TVs, and they're out of sync, yeah? I don't know why, yeah. Um, so one's on in the kitchen, and the other one's on in the living room, and you're like, mum, this is doing my head, this is driving me crazy. So as you said to Judith Roberts, the actress, who was really cool, and, you know, she's was like... brilliant in the film. Yeah, I mean, she, it was just, she was so much fun to work with. She's at that age but I think she just was having a hoot it was like who cares you know this is great I love this um, and 
just, I don't know, like, as you said, what would you be watching and, you know, like, think about the films you like and, you know, she said that, it was the first take and he said, you know, he went, ee, 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 you know, like, you know, they just improvised it a bit and then everyone's asking me, like, oh, yeah, that, that reference to Alfred Hitchcock and I'm like, I don't know that, but that ee, ee sound cost 15 grand, you know, <laughs> and then we used it twice and it cost 30 grand, so people were freaking out at me and I'm like, but that's a take, you know. <laughs> The great Lynn Ramsey talking about you were never really here at the Mark Kermode Live in 3D show at the BFI South Bank, which, as I said, happens every month. Now, if you like the sound of those tasters from the interviews, we're going to put out longer versions in a podcast coming very soon. Please do download that and give it a listen. So that's the end of this first Kermode on Film podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. Please do get in touch with any suggestions or questions or anything else. The easiest way to do that is to go to Twitter. My Twitter handle is at KermodeMovie and mark your questions or suggestions hashtag KermodeOnFilm or hashtag KOF. Look forward to hearing from you in the near future. Rock and roll has been going downhill ever since Buddy Holly died. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.